Hey there, Internet! Welcome to the Escapist Movie Podcast. My name is Jack Packard. I'm Darren Mooney. And I'm Lee Murky. Lee, thank you so much for joining us again this week. Uh, I'm going to slightly apologize for Unhinged, but, you know... (laughs) It is what it is. <laughs> I just appreciate you indulging us. Yeah, I feel like this sort of movie's all the rage right now. Oh God! I, I I'm really disappointed that Nick didn't take my pitch for the episode title of uh, "As the Crow Drives." That was my kind of pitch for this episode title, but unfortunately, mm. SEO doesn't really. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. We'll fair. we'll all try to curb our enthusiasm. Uh, for Unhinged, the Russell Crowe road rage movie that you've probably never heard of. <laughs> and there's a there's a big reason for that. Uh, and then later we are going to, of course, dive into Tenet now that it is available on HBO Max. Free for all to watch the 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 big lost blockbuster of the pandemic era, Compl- you know, went out to theaters, fizzled away. Why? How? Who? Where? When? When? That's the real question. (laughs) Uh, So hi and welcome, everybody. Uh, There's people chatting. We're here streaming and talking. Let's start off with Unhinged because. uh, Oh, Darren, you said you had you had the summary of Unhinged. Well, no, I just wanted to draw attention to like the one line Wikipedia headline summary, but not the plot synopsis, because, you know, we're going to get into that in a moment. But Mm -hmm. I just love that Wikipedia is like essential boiling down on hinge to its most basic premise is it tells the story of a young woman who is terrorized by a seemingly mentally ill stranger following a road rage incident and it feels like that kind of slightly undersells the movie a seemingly mental ill stranger is how we choose to categorize the character played by russell crowe in this movie which has the tagline he can happen to anyone oh my god yeah no this movie knows what it is um uh, Lee, do you care to break? I mean, this is going to be tough. It's a very complicated movie. Care to break down the plot of Unhinged for us? Oh, an Unhinged, a lady who is just habitually late for everything, uh, gets off to a late start, runs into traffic. A guy who, by the way, just murdered his ex-wife and her lover mm-hmm. is just sitting at a light, refuses to go. She beeps at him. That's her only infringement. He asks for an apology. She does not give it to him in the way he wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he starts murdering people in her life. That's pretty much the film. <laughs> <laughs> and that's unhinged. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, we should, we should, uh, go ahead, Darren. <laughs> we should probably give like some wider context for Unhinged. Unhinged was obviously, it is a B movie through and through. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the movies that was one of the first into cinemas. It was very much pitched. You know, we're going to talk about the other movie that was pitched as the first movie that will resurrect cinemas and the fact that that didn't happen or whatever. And the fact that Tenant got a lot of coverage for that. But Unhinged was one of the first movies that was like, yep, yeah, we're going back to cinemas. And indeed, like its release date was moved repeatedly during the pandemic. I think it was originally supposed to open in June. Mm-hmm. But they kept pushing it back like two weeks at a time. You know, the way that obviously like the big movies moved back a year and then moved back a year again when it became very clear that this was not working itself out. On Hinge was no, we moved two two weeks at a time because we want to be there when cinemas open. And it ended up becoming this kind of surprise breakout hit, relatively speaking, of the pandemic. 
Its budget was about $33 million, which is tiny by the standards of, like, a modern movie, even, like, a small chamber piece like this, um, even starring Russell Crowe, and it managed to earn back $43 million at the global box office. It performed relatively well, particularly internationally, uh, because mm. it managed to pitch itself as, like, a schlocky B-movie, and, like, we mentioned the kind of, like, forgot busters, or the not busters of 2020, the movies that, like, reigned in, in cinemas and in drive-in theatres, and, and kind of, like, when those places were open against all logical and rational advice last year uh, in the States. And they tended to be movies like this. Movies like, I think, The Wretched was one as well. Another Mm -hmm. kind of like haunted house witch movie that cost, I think, about $20 million. There was like a movie that famously got to the number one spot at the US box office by simply renting out a single theater and opening it in the middle of this. This was like a a bunch of friends made a horror movie and thought it would be fun to be number one at the US box office for a weekend. And you kind of admire that. So this is like, this is the kind of cultural milieu of Unhinged. It explains like where mm. Unhinged came from and where it pitched itself. And it really does kind of feel like that. It it almost feels like the kind of movie that given its like substance matter, its themes, its tone um, and its general sensibility, it feels like the kind of movie that you'd almost like want to see at a drive-in. Uh, weirdly enough. Oh, absolutely. And it's also like the kind of movie that is so easy for a studio to green light. It is all. I like that, Jack. The... Thank you for catching that. Um, it's all of the basics where it's like, hey, uh, what, do, what do people know about? They know about road rage, right? OK, the road rage killer. Ha ha. That's what we do. It's <laughs> who's the biggest actor of 20 years ago. And is he affordable? Yes. <laughs> Can he gain a bunch of weight for this role? Oh, he did already. Great. No offense, Mr. Crow. We all we all fluctuate. It's fine. Uh, yeah. And we do love Crow, to and be we fair. Do, we do love Crow. But- and, and, and nobody understands this movie, I think, better than Crow. Like, oh, he's perfect for it. Oh, yeah. No, he is. Like, And again, like this is the thing where I'm kind of nervous making this comparison because it feels very judgmental because of you mentioned the weight gain and stuff like that. But he really does at times feel like he's going kind of full late career Brando where it's like, I know that I am the center of gravity of the movie I found myself in. I know that I'm the movie star here. I know that if I say jump, the production is going to say how high. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no point at which you get a sense watching this that like, Anybody on the production said, uh, Mr. Crow, could you uh, could you take it down a bit? Just like just want to amp it down a bit. Could you maybe give a little bit less just so that when you go big later on? It's kind of like, no, you, you really get a sense that kind of like Crow arrived on. He's like, no, this is I have decided where this movie's pitched. It's going to stay there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, um, I, I know like earlier I was I was uh, I was mentioning things like uh, the Coen Brothers Barton Fink, which is my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Barton Fink, uh, it, it deals with a uh, playwright going to Hollywood to write his first screenplay. And the producer of the movie asks him for a wrestling picture, a very simple good guy, bad guy. That's it. Like, make me a standard movie. And to me, un- I-, I love Unhinged, not because it's a good movie, because <laughs> let's be very, very fair. Like, it's very adequate, but it is boilerplate. It is exactly what it needs to be no longer. It is exactly 90 minutes long, not a yep. second longer, because it can- it doesn't have to be. We can't afford that. It <laughs> it sets up things. It then neatly pays them off. It sets up another thing and neatly pays it off. You know exactly what's going to happen. Beautiful. <laughs> I, like, again, this is probably, like, my weird problem with the movie is that, like, it 
occasionally feels like it's not sure what lane it's in. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, but like, <laughs> sorry, apologies. But like, there there are like really good, really atmospheric, really effective kind of moments here. Like, I absolutely love, for example, the introduction of the like the big SUV or truck that the man drives, where it's shot like the car from Jaws. It's it's already over on her side of the road when like she pulls over. So you immediately get that sense. You get the camera kind of looking at the grill, looking at the wheels, and it's a sense of this thing that is big and imposing and massive and it again very much like in the style of something like say Jewel by Steven Spielberg his, his famous kind of like television film debut that was so good they actually put it in theaters and wound up making a bunch of money hmm. but like I'm watching Unhinged and there are points at which it feels like the movie kind of awkwardly is trying to say something and then it will pull back and go, nope, no way we're saying anything. This is just a schlocky B-movie road rage thriller. But, like, there are points at which, like, during the opening credits where you get stuff like, well, isn't incivility a real problem? Man, temperatures are, are really hot right now. People are really angry just inside. And, like, there are points throughout where you get, like, this subtext kind of playing through of, like, Rachel, who is, like, a newly divorced single mother and her friend and the idea of like the man feeling like he's been supplanted and you know he murdering his wife first of all and then targeting Rachel and specifically like targeting her best friend divorce lawyer transferring all of her money to her husband it feels like the movie's kind of getting at something that you know you might want to handle with a bit of delicacy or nuance or care yeah. but then as soon as it puts those ideas out there it just puts the the pedal to the metal it's like no we're, we're just a standard slasher movie it's like standard slasher movie rules from here on out and i i feel like the movie doesn't get that balance entirely right is that sorry yeah i 100 agree i watched this film in a very odd state of mind so I, for the last week or so, I've been watching nothing but super singular, interesting films. So like Secret Honor, Robert Altman, Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. What happened was the 1994 masterpiece by Tom Noonan. So like I've been watching really interesting, independent, singular films. So by the time I got to Unhinged, it just put a really bad taste in my mouth because <laughs> everything is so mechanical. It's like. A, a, a film school student, a really good one, mm -hmm. sat down and said, all right, what do I need to get from point A to point Z in three acts? And that's what it is. Like, nobody feels like they're talking to another person. It's mm -hmm. like, hi, sister, you are this. <laughs> hi, fiance, you're this to me. And like, you know, it, it just none of it felt genuine, which is fine. But if, if you're going to make a B movie with no humanity, mm -hmm. then add some style. Right. Like if, if you're going to do schlocky things like Don't Breathe made me like I thought about Don't Breathe when I watched this. Sure, Don't sure. Breathe is super, super sleazy, yeah. terrible yeah. by his third act. But it has so much style and, and it's at least interesting. Unhinged was just like, what do we have? All right, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> what's on Russell what's on the truck. what's on the May things we can easily make pile? I, yeah. I love, by the way, how you specifically called out a real line in the movie where she says, I know you're my brother, but <laughs> like it's me mechanical oh. is putting this script very lightly. This oh, was remember this, when mom got lost wandering around that housing estate. Hell, what? I get lost wandering around that housing estate. <laughs> I wonder if in the third act, the man who's hunting me down will also get lost wandering around that housing estate. And close up on cell phone in the car. Okay, she does another thing. Another close up on cell phone in the car to reaffirm that the cell phone is definitely in the car. I wonder if that's going to come up in two seconds. <laughs> like, I, 
I will, I will, I will give the movie credit for like its closing one-liner and the one-liner as a callback. I did appreciate that. That's what I want from a V movie: a <laughs> cheesy closing badass one-liner that is also an out-of-context reference to like the introductory scene of that character. Mm. I like the point is, yes, it's mechanical, formulaic. Oh boy, baby, teach a class on this movie because that's what a movie is. Uh, like it's so simple and dumb. And there is a part of me, like there, there's like, there's an arty farty part of me, an, an arty farty party. Uh, that's what I am, an arty farty party. But like, there's also a part of me that appreciates that someone was just able to make something so simple and so dumb and get it done. And they, they're just like, oh, like we all, because I'm sure we all say to ourselves like, oh, I could write a movie like that. But, you know, we haven't. This person has and they got it made. That's great. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always going to champion mid-budgeted films. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm glad they still exist. I bought the Blu-ray yesterday for like twelve bucks, right? Like, <laughs> I'm just happy that kind of stuff exists. Like, but I'm not, I'm not mad at it for that reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it, it is like it's, it's like it's Chicken McNuggets. You know, like it, this is like greasy, easy to digest. You know exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get it at a reasonable price and you're going to feel maybe a little bad after it. Yeah. True. I mean, like that's just, it it is part of me is like, you look at this and you look at even say like comparable, like really good kind of like road ragey kind of thrillers. Like, and I mean, I suppose breakdown from the nineties kind of counts as well. Yeah. Things like the, the problem was I was watching this and I was comparing it to a bunch of other movies. I was thinking, and it was like this, like, it feels like it's trying to be like changing lanes and falling down when it should be trying to be like jewel or like breakdown or something like that. Like that was kind of like my my big problem with it, so to speak. It like I don't know. It, it is it is kind of hard to kind of put into into words or context, but it felt like there were moments where the movie like gestures at something mm-hmm. and then realizes that that something is outside the remit of the wrestling picture that it's been asked to write, and so kind of retreats, but doesn't cut that line out or doesn't cut that context out. It's just like no, that stuff is also in there as well, and we're not really going to delve into it or explore it or play with it and like because again it's it's notable like it's from uh the writer i think it's carl ellis ellsworth who's responsible for like you know red eye which i actually think is massively underrated as far as like modern b movies kind of go that that's the one with killian murphy and uh, rachel mcadams um oh yeah 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 yeah, it's a it's a re- uh, that's the one where she's on a flight next to a hitman who's threatened to kill her father unless she does something for him. And it's basically it's a hike. It's a literal high concept because they're in a plane because it's high. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's basically she has to figure out a way to get away from him or to outwit him or to like defeat him. And it you know like it's not a masterpiece, but it's very similar to like remember phone booth or remember cellular. Uh, very popular around the twenty two thousands where it was like hey mobile phones now exist. We can have some like actual fun with this concept concept and build like these schlocky thrillers around them and like it was directed by Wes Craven and like I'm looking at like Red Eye directed by Wes Craven and it's like I it's it's so bad that I'm like I wish that Unhinged were directed by somebody who could like do that to this script as it were you know somebody who could like mm-hmm. make it just a little bit leaner a little bit tighter a little bit cle- a little bit more focused in what it's yeah. doing or like as opposed like to Lisa, yeah. just add add even add some colored gels to your lights and give it some style maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I know this is like a really superficial ask but even 
in, in terms of style, like cinematic graphically, like in that opening shot where he yeah. murders his ex-wife and everything, mm -hmm. what if the camera just stays in the car yeah. as he sure. leaves without breaking and, and you everything is implied, right? He steps behind the door, you hear everything happening, mm -hmm. and then the fire starts. We get it, right? And it's it's interesting. Yeah. Like when he gets back in the car and drives away, that's really interesting. We can see the blood on his shirt. Like mm -hmm. a, a good example of what I mean by just adding style to premises that are not particularly profound, like you were never really here, yeah. is a great example of that. Like yeah. this film handles violence in a really stylized way. It's really interesting. So I'm just imagining, you know, this film with th that level of attention to detail and sure. style. Hmm. And like to bring it back to like that specific opening shot that Lee mentions, because it's not really a spoiler because it's the entire premise of the movie. But like, <laughs> I feel like Lee's on, Lee's on to something there when he says like that, keep the camera inside the car because the movie itself sees that the movie itself understands that like keeping the camera inside the car while that happens is an interesting idea because it begins with the camera in the car watching him get out it then cuts to him banging on the door outside and cuts to like various things happening but it, it then cuts back to the camera inside the car as he comes out and you can tell that the director was basically like, yeah, what if the camera's inside the car while this is happening? And then goes, no, wait, no, that that's a little bit too artsy-fartsy. How about we start and end inside the car, but then we also get all the cool stuff in between. That's the best of both worlds. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about when I talk about it not, not picking a lane. It's like yeah. either either do the artsy fartsy stuff where you're doing where you're treating the the jeep like the like the shark from Jaws and where you're like oh boy god we're actually physically claustrophobically trapped in a car because it's a road rage movie trapping us yeah. in the car during that sequence would be like very much what a road rage movie should be mm -hmm. but there's also a sense of no 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 investors paid their money we paid for like the special effects of blowing up the house we paid for like the blood squibs and the hammer and the door that he's going to knock down we got to see all that stuff in close detail and we can, we can just cut back to the car when it's done. You know, I mean, it'll be the same effect. I'll we'll get you your arty farty shot. Yeah. Don't you worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. it's like one or the other. Like that. That's my kind of thing. It's like choose which one you want to be. And the movie's like, what if what if I was both up until like forty minutes in, and then I just go hard. Um, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like yeah. just go hard from the start, or like go like artsy fartsy from the start don't do half and half and then go actually you know what no just we've kind of yeah. <laughs> well no and like that that like to me that's part of the like part of the joy is like one this is exactly like a cut down version of this like uh movie on one of the three channels i had growing up is exactly what i would watch on a saturday afternoon as a kid yeah. uh so i love that the it just goes back to that mechanical nature of it where where you can tell this was a safe script and it was a safe script exactly because they are not taking any arty farty risks with it <laughs> we're we're going to do this by the numbers and uh, what what i really hope is just like everyone who is involved because it's very competent like there's nothing egregiously yeah. technically wrong with the movie but it's it's just it's just lifeless I, so, you know, you you hope that this is exactly the kind of springboard for everyone to be like, oh, OK, now I've made one. I've shown that I can work with big name actors. Give me a movie where I can flourish a little bit. 
Yeah, well, that that's the, the weird thing about this is that like this only thrived because it was released in a pandemic when mm. no other major studio was released. Like the reason why this got released is because it happened to be a movie that cost $30 million, which was within, and we talked about this in the podcast, that's within the range of like the recoverable cost of a movie <laughs> released during the pandemic, which is why, you know, the studios were horribly screwed because they're like, no, we've got no $30 million movies to release. All we have are $200 million movies and they won't ever make their money back like this. Um, and like, like, part of my worry is that, like, instead of going, okay, well, look, you know, you did well with this $33 million movie. Let's let you make another $33 million movie that will make $50 million back on it. Why don't you do that? They're going to say, no, actually, you know what? You did really well in an impossible situation. Why don't you have, like, $80 million? Um, and it's like, no, that's not the budget range in which my aesthetic works. Like, I'm, if I release it, if you release an $80 million version of Unhinged, it bombs at the box office office and the director's career is over that's kind of that's my that's my issue with it that's my kind of like fear and it's not an issue with the film but it's my fear about like the unique confluence of circumstances that made unhinged like one of the blockbusters of the pandemic era it feels increasingly like the kind of thing that could never happen again although i suppose you know maybe if it had been released on hbo max you know, because that's a different measure of success or metric of success. You know, like we talked about, I think we talked about Run on Hulu, for example, mm, which would be yeah, a similar yeah. movie to this. I slightly preferred uh, Run uh, oh, on God, Hulu yes. to this. Yes, Run was, you know, interesting. Interesting and like well directed. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't mean to rain on Derek Bort's parade. Again, he does exactly what is expected of him. Um, but like Run was very stylized, very aggressive. Very, it knew what it was doing from the top down, whereas mm. here it feels like it knows what it's doing from the bottom up um but yeah it just um that's that's my kind of fear with unhinged is that it's like yeah this is the kind of cliche of the movies that they don't really make anymore down to the fact that it is like it's a star vehicle the poster is russell crowe is unhinged um as if like that's his character name yeah um and like you know that you like and, and to be fair you know you can't really Again, not to get too spoilery in case people haven't seen it, but let's just say I imagine a sequel will be quite difficult to make to Unhinged because the premise is so closely tied to, well, what if Russell Crowe had road rage? And all of this feels like a kind of movie making. And, you know, when I say a kind of movie making we don't really do anymore, it sounds like vaunted, like I'm talking about like crystal towers and like, you know, golden eras or whatever. I'm more talking about like, the era in like the 90s or 2000s when you could release movies like this. And again, it's not even just like the the box office in terms of cinema and obviously not being dominated by the tent poles that, that tower over the landscape today. It's even things like the existence of physical media, which could turn a movie like this into a hit, even if nobody went to see it on opening weekend. So I do kind of look at this and I think, ah, this is really sad. This may be one of the last movies that I see like this. And it's not that like this is a masterpiece or like it's a statement of what cinema is, but it's a kind of movie that, you know, I do enjoy. And oh, like we all sure. enjoy. So and you're I'm, you're seeing this more as like the death th- throes no, no, well, of the of the mid-budget B schlock. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, do we think that this, like, would this have been released in cinemas in the middle of the pandemic? What, sorry, if the pandemic had never happened, mm-hmm. do we think this would have even made $43 million? Because it would have been yeah. released the same weekend as, as, say, Black Widow, for example, sure, or The yeah, Eternals. Yeah. It would have opened at, like, what, number four, maybe? Because it's like Russell Crowe, and you've got that sense of nostalgia there. The reviews weren't particularly great. It would have sunk like a stone. You know, I mean, I can see a world where this earned less 
uh, had the pandemic not happened. Uh, which is, it's, you know, sad, really, to be honest. You know, I don't know. Sorry. This has like, Unhinged definitely has like heavy, like older white dad energy who like understands that Russell Crowe is the bad guy, but also definitely understands what, what Russell Crowe is going through. She, she should have get courtesy tap. Like, <laughs> I, that. I, there, there is there is a really like Lee Lee mentioned it there in his summary like literally the only thing that she does to deserve this if you're looking at this like from an objective point of view is she honks at him because he's refusing to turn at a light because he's apparently lost in thought about murdering his his ex-wife and her new boyfriend and that apparently is enough that she transgressed according to the logic of horror movies and deserves to be punished I did watch this and part of me was thinking like how much of this movie is also structured so that there's a part of the audience that has a reptile brain response of, well, look, she's always late. She just got, she just got, she just got fired for like not arriving on time at where she's supposed to be. She's only honking at him because she's late. Like mm. it's her problem that she honked at him. And part of me is watching the movie and I know like rationally, objectively, the movie is not saying it's her fault but the way in which it's constructed is enough that, yeah, as Jack said, there's a bit of the, you can almost see the dad brain that's like, well, I mean, maybe she should have given the courtesy tap. Yeah. yeah. And when you consider her arc with like yeah. the final shot of the film where she doesn't blow the horn at an asshole, it's yeah. like, wait, wait a minute now. Oh, look, she learned her what? lesson. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? This whole thing was you're gonna remember my face, yeah. right? right? Every and, time and obviously yeah. she remembered when she didn't honk that horn. So it's like, wait a minute, movie, what's happening? <laughs> yes, because yeah, like, like I'm not gonna touch the the whole subtext about like, oh, we have a shortage of police officers, therefore they're never present, therefore more violent crime. I'm not gonna touch that because this can get really, really, really bad. Yeah. But <laughs> Ooh, all right, yeah. Oh no, oh, we're not. No, never. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, like, and there, there is, like, the movie invites that subtext in because there's this whole sense of, like, him feeling a kinship with her, like, ex-husband and stuff like that and transferring mm. the money over. And the fact in which, like, her son is like, look, mom, just apologize to him. Just apologize to him and this problem will go away. And she, quite rationally, is like, no, stop talking to the strange, <laughs> sweaty man. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. No, and... And like, I do think like there are because there's a lot of like exposition as far as like, you know, uh, you know, oh, the cops are very busy. Everyone's angry now. <laughs> like jobs are down and everyone's angry now. Uh, like, I think that was mechanical. Like that was just basically an excuse to let him get away with his crime ramp for as long as he does. For, yeah, for as long <laughs> as possible. But but you're absolutely right. If the movie was like any smarter or any dumber, like it would have leaned into those those uh those subtext. Yeah. It doesn't though. That's just like no, no, that's why the cops aren't there. Go. Just go. That's why the you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And like I like I don't think that the movie is saying well she kind of brought it on herself. I think I think the movie is fun. I think the movie is like <laughs> She shouldn't have been driving around. Like, okay, no, I should. That's not. No, I should. I should not say that. But You're like, gonna get in trouble. I am gonna. I, no, I know. I'm. The movie is not saying that, and I'm not saying that. 
but uh, like the movie is doing exactly what Jack said it's doing, which is like it's understanding the assignment. The script is you're writing a schlocky B movie horror, mm-hmm. and the rules of schlocky B movie horror is that like for the audience to vicariously enjoy the suffering inflicted on the main character, there has to be some implied moral transgression that makes it okay. There has mm-hmm. to be something that makes the person in question deserving, in inverted commas, of the <laughs> suffering that is put on. Like that's the whole thing. Like I'm rewatching. To, leading up to the release of Spiral next week, I'm rewatching Saul. And the entire premise of Saul is that the movie series inexplicably buys into this like weird life affirming kind of like life coach aspect of a serial killer where it's like, sure, you may die. But if you don't, you'll learn how to live. And you can almost hear the piano keys playing on the background. It's like, well, Jigsaw really taught us a lot about the power of friendship <laughs> and seizing every moment. Um, but like, there's a, there's like, like, but that's because horror, horror movies have to have that because if they don't, it's just mean spirited and it's hard for the audience to go, well, look, why is he hurting that poor woman? As mm. opposed to her having to do something that brings her on him because that's the rules of a horror movie. And I think mm-hmm. Lee and, and Jack are both entirely right. The movie doesn't really stop to think about like the, where that train of thought goes uh, when it plays out those tropes or conventions to their logical extreme. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a huge problem, but it was in the back of my head while I was watching it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like the movie's hammering, you know, she could have avoided this just a little bit too hard. Like I, I feel like it's more it's more like Archie Bunker syndrome where it's like like no Russell Crowe is definitely supposed to be the bad guy but a whole bunch of people are gonna think he's a hero even though he's definitely the bad guy <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it happened with Joker yeah oh, oh. careful you I said mean, you said the name that shall not be mentioned and it was <laughs> summoned in the conversation comments I mean I. I- <laughs> I did find it a bit weird where Russell Crowe pulled over, instructed the kid to roll down the window and said, we live in a society. Oh, boy. I thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no. <laughs> And like I, I mean, like I, I did enjoy. Like I, I feel like I'm being like mean or cynical here about the movie. There were parts of it that I loved. Like I loved the B movie, the unreserved B movie aspect of it. Like the bit mm-hmm. where it gives characters inexplicable one-liners in the midst of all this horrible stuff that is happening to them. Like there's the moment where like he's stolen her phone and he's reads like, Doctor Miller says she wants to move your Friday appointment. She's gonna have to bring her A game because you're gonna have some stuff to work through. And I'm like, that's that's the movie. Give me that movie. <laughs> yeah. as, as opposed to like the weird bit where he sits down with the divorce lawyer. He's like, do you help her screw over other men like this? And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe take a seat back there, movie. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really enjoyed the guy getting hit by the the car because um, when he that genuinely surprised me I thought like oh he's gonna be fine when he fell off the truck and then boom I was like whoa shit <laughs> like, okay that was a proper that was a Micho Black twofer I really like and like, if, if you guys I don't know if you guys have seen, seen the like 90s Micho Black like the like I one of my favorite slash least favorite cinematic experiences is going to see that as I think a 12 year old and sitting in a oh. cinema full of people because well, it's like it's got Anthony Hopkins in it I like Anthony uh, and Brad Pitt and I like I like every 12 year old likes Anthony I, Hopkins <laughs> I, I, I was a weird 12 year old kid but anyway so I'm in the cinema I'm sitting down I'm watching it and it's a very, like, a very old audience and uh, the moment where if you haven't seen it there's a moment where like Brad Pitt has a meet cute with Claire Forlani he's not death yet he's just Brad Pitt they have a cute moment they turn away she walks towards the camera 
camera. He walks away from the camera. He's kind of going, oh man, that was a really nice meet cute that I just had. And bam, he gets hit by a car. His body is flipped through the air. And before it lands, bam, he gets hit by another car, kind of ricochet going on there. And 12-year-old Darren, not having any real sense of context or decorum or the room he was in, threw back my head and laughed out loud for three minutes uh, while all these old people were just looking at me going, what the hell is wrong with that kid? So I I did appreciate that there was, you know, I mean, we talked about how this is Schlocky B-movie. I feel like Unhinged does pay respect to the cinematic classics. It does have a proper Micho Black moment where a character gets hit by a car and then hit by another car very quickly in the other direction. For beautiful (laughs) Absolutely. All right. We should probably stop talking about Unhinged now. I just want uh, one more thing oh, that Darren is a ni- one, more th- one more thing that is a nice segue. Did you guys see the poster for the movie Second Weekend? Because it was released the week before Tenet. So in its second weekend, it released a poster, and it's well worth googling if you're on social media. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is a poster with the word Unhinged slashed down the middle of it. One picture of Russell Crowe up top going this way. One picture of Russell Crowe down bottom going this way, and the tagline is. See the movie that won't make your head hurt. Wow. <laughs> That's exactly where <laughs> Unhinged is pitched. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, okay. I kind of admire, I kind of, like, part of me just admires, like, the we know what we're <laughs> selling aspect of it. Hey there, yeah. dummy. You too dumb for those other movies? Come and watch Unhinged. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> I love Counter programming. There are literally only two <laughs> movies out, so how do we pitch this? Um, Come yes. on, dumb dumb. <laughs> well, right, and it, like if if unhinged is a you know six piece chicken McNugget, I'm gonna start this on a positive note. Tenant is definitely some fusion food that you know, like if you go to the right place at the right time, is gonna taste fantastic, and if you go to the wrong place on the wrong night, it ain't gonna <laughs> taste no good at all. So, you know, like if we're sticking with our food metaphor, which I'm abandoning right now because it stopped making sense when I started saying it. And and that, I think, is perhaps the perfect Tenet metaphor. I say as, prob- <laughs> as, as probably the person on this podcast who loves Tenet the most. It was my favorite movie last year. I, w- I will cop to that, I will say. So well played, Jack. Well played. I, I Here's what I want to say. Here, and I, I, want, I want it to be as fair as possible because, uh, Darren, I know you love Tenet. No, no, no. Um, and well, I know a lot of people like Tenet. Uh, I know it's, you know, and a lot of people like Christopher Nolan. I like Christopher Nolan overall. I, I like most of his movies. Um, I, I was really excited for Tenet. I like everyone went to bed, put it up on the big screen with the surround sound, like just me watching a movie by myself. And I, oh, I was like, I was all ready. I was all ready to get into Tenet. And by the way, I do feel like it starts for me very, very strong. That opening, like infiltrate the opera that's being run over by terrorist sequence super strong very engaging it sold me and then the rest of the movie happened and it lost me so hard on so many levels i i I think there is so many things wrong with this movie except for that opening 10 minutes which is so great It's kind of amazing because the opening like shot of the the opening moments of the movie are perhaps the most pretentious because you have the orchestra lining up, getting ready to play for the eager audience, know. and you have the conductor who kind of gets his senior conducting conductor staff, I don't mm-hmm. know, wand ready to compose, and then he just gets shot in the middle of it, and then carnage breaks out, and it's Beautiful. like, yeah, this is this is you know, Nolan's not being subtle in signaling like <laughs> what's happening here. It's like, yep, yeah, bold statement of purpose. 
Perhaps a little. Some might use the word pretentious, but I'm okay with pretentious. Uh, like Lee, have you seen this movie recently? Did you see it when it first came out? What's your What's your What was you Where were you going into Tenet? Yeah, so I I saw Tenet actually when it came to theaters. It was like new Nolan. I've been on lockdown forever. I'm just gonna go watch this movie. Mm-hmm. The only person in the theater, um, hey. and it I I loved Tenet the first time I saw it. I realized it had issues mm-hmm. uh but then i did a rewatch um last night actually right after unhinged and it was just like drinking fresh water after leaving the, the desert it was it was great um so a, a few things that i i love about it so nolan for me is stepping fully into his role as like the new david lean he's getting out of that faux kubrickian realm that he was in with interstellar like and he's really stepping into like spectacle is the point. Um, and I, I really I really enjoyed that. I love pretty much everything about the aesthetics of the film. I'm not a fan of the fact that in 70 mil, Nolan still for some reason shoots people in singles. Like yeah. shoot the ensemble, dude. Like you have a, a hyper wide lens, shoot the ensemble. Why are you not shooting the ensemble? But um, I also think that this is Nolan's most heavy handed and intentional thematic story so the, the film opens with like the first diegetic line of dialogue is wake up Americans, right? Yeah. So, and then like his, the villain in the story, what's his name? Sator. 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 His story is like this very broad retelling of like late capitalism under neoliberalism. So he literally kills the person that he went with to accue like this absurd wealth, but he sacrifices his longevity. And as he's doing this, he's like, okay, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna take the world with me. That is like the perfect way to talk about neoliberalism and late capitalism. So it, it's the most deliberate Nolan script I've seen in a long time. I wanna apologize for Jack because this is very much my jam. I am into this. Even things like, <laughs> even things know, like, like the fact it. that Sator emerged from like the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fact that he's the new face of like, you know, sort of Russian capitalism. It's the idea that capitalism not only won the Cold War, it colonized Russia and it produced men like Sator. Sator, who is literally so much new money that his money doesn't even exist yet. It comes back <laughs> to him from the future. <laughs> But they, even even things like the way in which, and you mentioned the idea that it is about late capitalism, like it is absolutely and unequivocally about late capitalism. It is a Bond movie through and through. Obvious point of comparison. I mean, you mentioned David Lean. I couldn't help but think of like Alfred Hitchcock, uh, particularly in things like, say, um, To Catch a Thief. Like those sequences where they're like going sure. to the yacht and you have like these wonderful Italian surroundings. It's like, look at these pretty people wearing pretty suits looking gorgeous. Um, but like yeah. when it comes to this this idea that runs through the film of the rich are fundamentally different from us. Um, the rich live by different rules than us. Uh, the rich operate by different systems than us. And sorry, this is this is quite heavy-handed didactic, but I, I do think, like, Lee's entirely correct. The movie is not subtle on this point. But, like, one of the things that I, I love about it is that it follows the protagonist following the classic James Bond arc. And the James Bond arc is, he's this kid. 
He's got a chip on his shoulder. He's just a regular guy. He's got to get into this world of, like, rich people who, like, gamble obscene amounts of money, take grotesque holidays, spend impossible sums, buy hotels and restaurants, and just kind of mingle in that world. And, like, that's the standard template of every Bond movie. If you've read an Ian Fleming novel, Ian Fleming novels read, like, American Psycho to a certain extent because they're, like, selling you a lifestyle. It's like, buy this shaving foam, buy this rum, not this other rum because that rum's cheap. You want this proper rum because it's expensive and people know that it's expensive and it tastes just right from the Caribbean. And it's this kind of like aspirational figure. And what I like about, you know, what I like about Tenet is that this idea of infiltrating the wealthy that is like the standard stock spy movie template very quickly becomes, no, you've seen rich people on television. You've seen rich people in cinema. You do not understand how being wealthy being that wealthy changes the world in which you move. Like you have that moment where he's dressed really sharply and he goes to visit Michael Caine and Michael Caine's like, that suit's not going to cut it. You have the moment where he meets like Mm -hmm. Kat at the restaurant and she's like, well, look, you've got, you've got the suit, you've got the glasses, you've got the watch, but you, you don't understand how we live when she's like, you know, he spent $7 million on a holiday. It's like, where'd you go? Mars? Because he doesn't understand. They go sailing and they go, even when the rich fecking sail, it's different from the rest of us because they ride those boats that seem to fly. And like, it's repeatedly point out that Sater has the influence of a small country. He lives on a yacht with anti-aircraft defenses so that in case he like reaches a point where he can't count on governments to protect him, he can protect himself. Mm-hmm. And like what Tenet does is Tenet takes that one step further and says, well, look, if the laws of civilized society don't apply to these people, that's the entire point of the Freeport sequence, which is what you get is the point at which like the actual inversion is properly introduced into the movie is the point at which you go to the Freeport. And the Freeport is like, and the movie exposits this very well, so I'm not going to retread it, but the Freeport is this space that exists outside national borders. And it exists in a place where, like, rich people can keep their absurd amounts of wealth without paying any tax on it. Because these spaces exist outside the laws of the countries in which they operate. Mm -hmm. And then the movie goes, yeah, and what if the laws of physics also didn't apply to them? But, like, it's not that much of an absurd leap. It's a, it's a metaphorical abstraction because they exist at a remove. And it's exactly what Lee said with Sator, where Sator's entire arc is, I have made money, I have profited, I am wealthy and I am rich. And like everything in the movie, he's incapable of comprehending anything except ownership or wealth. Mm-hmm. He has a son and he wants to kill his son at the end because he cannot conceive of his son having a life beyond his own. The son exists mm-hmm. as an object. When Kat says, why won't you let me leave you? It's because I can't let anyone else have you. Sorry, that is, my accent is only marginally better than Kenneth Branagh's in this movie. But like, <laughs> but like, I, I kind of love how wholeheartedly the movie goes there. And I get like part of me if we're being generous to Nolan as a whole, I would argue it's a theme that simmers throughout Nolan's work, arguably going back to The Prestige, where you have the idea with, like, Alfred Borden, who, like, sells his entire life in order to get a chance at, like, providing for his family. He has to sacrifice who he is in order to get ahead in the world, and he does that by pretending to be the professor. You arguably, like... Let's not get into the politics of The Dark Knight Rises because that's a separate podcast, but let's just ex- let's just accept, like, <laughs> statement of fact, The Dark Knight Rises is the only major Batman story ever 
that ends with Batman giving his belongings to charity and accepting that one man probably shouldn't control that much wealth. The only major Batman story ever that does sure. that. Um, we can, we'll, we can see that. Now. Even things like, say, Inception, where it's like, not only do monopolistic kind of companies exist, and again, Inception, separate conversation about what it means about the art and about cinema, but like even in Inception, it's like, not only do like mon- monopolies exist, they exist in a way that control and warp the human brain and its capacity to like comprehend and imagine and perceive its relationship to the larger world. So I do, I do feel like all of that is like very intentional, and it feels like it feels like with Tennant, like he's been saying this for what fourteen years now since like yeah. Prestige at the least, and it's like now he's got a megaphone. Like, what I. Sorry, I'm no, and yeah, I, I will be, I will be the no, the no, punching no. bag here no, as no, no, I'm no, the no, one no. who didn't like tennis. So I'm Sorry. ready. No, I'm ready. Don't you worry. I got it. Uh, uh, first of all, thanks to Jack Brown uh, for the five euros. Uh, who says no offense, Ooh. but Darren explaining the film makes it sound like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. I know writers who use subtext. They're, They're all cowards. cowards. Uh, and while like I see that I I, I saw. These themes in the film and I, they are there and you are both of you are very correct that they are there. What I will say is they are, or at least for me, they were there a smattering of places. I don't believe they are well integrated into the whole of the movie, unlike Inception, which I think does a very good job of integrating all elements into its one central theme. Here, I felt like they were paying a little lip service to it. Like, for example, our our protagonist I don't see his arc as it relates to uh, to this theme, and really? and I'm I'm well I'm well I'm welcome to to really? okay. I'm, I'm welcome for criticism, but like, I, but he, he doesn't was, understand like like there's the whole thing where he like tries like he tries to blackmail Cat that sequence yeah. where he tries to blackmail Cat and she's like. No, no, you're you're not doing. You're you don't understand what you're doing in this scene. You yeah, don't understand yeah. how you're supposed to use the power that you have over me because you don't come from this world. And like that's the whole thing. And again, this is probably like a bigger picture of what the movie's about. I would mm-hmm. argue is this idea of the protagonist entering a world that he doesn't entirely understand. And like one of the big debates about Tenant is like, oh, does it actually make sense? Does it hold up together? Like, what's going on? When? How do you connect the dots? Is it difficult to follow and no, i don't it's it's, yeah yeah, yeah okay okay yeah yeah no i i, I know but there's a lot of like you know sure. uh, there's a lot of that in the ambience there the the whole unhinged you know see the movie that won't make your head hurt or whatever but like uh, r- there, oh, right right yeah. but there there is an element of tenant that is the protagonist stepping into a world that he doesn't understand where the rules are fundamentally different and right. trying to orient or orient himself within that, and like you, you have this debate that plays throughout, and it, it's it's it is more metaphorical. This is actually a metaphor. This isn't Nolan shouting down the camera, mm-hmm. but throughout you have this debate because this is a movie that involves spoiler time travel. Um, you have this moment where like Sator is planning to destroy all of human history because he cannot conceive of a world beyond himself. But mm-hmm. you have a moment where like characters will repeatedly ask well well how does this actually work what are the the consequences or the mechanics of this like there's a point where like where they're in a shipping container and the protagonist goes well look doesn't the fact that we are sitting here now talking about it imply that sator doesn't destroy all of human history simultaneously and like neil the character played by um uh, robert pattinson says 
that is one interpretation of events. That was the logical conclusion of it. It does imply that, yeah, what has happened, happened. You know, predetermination is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's entirely possible that multiverses exist and human consciousness works in a different way. So we're not entirely sure about how this works. And this is kind of like what my big thesis statement of what Tenet is about is that, like, all of Nolan's films are about navigating reality and the relationship between the individual's perception of the world and the world as it is. And, like, this is one of the great ironies of Nolan as a filmmaker, and I apologize. I'm going to get all pretentious bullshitty nonsense you get, here. You get pretentious but you, we got to focus. Go, go. Okay, okay. But, like... Nolan's big thing as a director is how practical he is, how much he leans on practical technology and practical effects, how much time he spends joking with his good friend Steven Soderbergh about the fact that he still shoots on film, which you can physically hold and which is physically real. Even in Tenet, there's like stories about how the movie features fewer than 280 effect shots, which is less than most 90-minute romantic comedies, for example. You know, how he'll be like, oh, we actually physically crashed a plane in order to do this scene and to give it all texture. And like, part of me is like, okay, yeah, he's sure just, he's just a nerd who likes doing this stuff and that's why he does it. Mm -hmm. But part of me is also like, if you look at the themes of his films, His films are all about people who are not sure what is real to them and what is not. You have that moment in Memento where Leonard says, he literally, and again, Leonard literally picks up a, an ashtray and says, I know that this has mass and I know that this has weight. And later on, Leonard says, but I don't know if I close my eyes does the world around me cease to exist because I have no memory. You have in like the prestige, you have like Angier, never sure whether he's the man in the box or the prestige. The fact that like Danton is obsessed or Angier is obsessed with like knowing what it felt like for his wife to drown, even though that is fundamentally unknowable because the only way to know it is to drown and to die and to not retain that knowledge or pass that knowledge on. Even in something like Interstellar where you have like, well, there's this magic door that is open this portal that has opened and we have no idea how or why or what the rules that it's operating by are Mm -hmm. and like in Tenet you have that taken to its logical extreme where like if you stop and think about the logic of the Tenet stuff you probably shouldn't but if you do you immediately hit all these sorts of like physical roadblocks where it's like well if they're if they're reverse and if time moves backwards how does light bounce off their skin and like you have like moments where like you know he's learning how to drive a car backwards in reverse in what i think ives calls you know cowboy shit by the way small thing but i kind of love um in the character of ives is very much you can tell meant to be played by tom hardy Uh, he's the character played by aaron taylor johnson right he's called Mm -hmm. ives in inception there's a character played by tom hardy called eames so it's ives and eames i kind of like that the two sensory organs but anyway wait wait, darren uh, we 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 gotta i gotta focus you here the question okay, was: the question was, how do the themes uh, of Tenet apply to our protagonist? Yeah, and this is this is exactly where it is. Sorry, apologies about that. He does no, like like know, like every I know other... you got a lot of Nolan up there, so I'm yeah. just trying to I'm trying to like, squeeze out. You yeah, know, just like... gonna ring it. Okay, like yeah. every other Nolan protagonist, he doesn't understand the world in which he works. He doesn't right. know for sure what's real. He doesn't understand the rules of time travel as it applies. He also, as Lee pointed out, doesn't understand the rules of wealth as they apply to him. Mm. So you have this big thing running through the movie, which is how do you orient yourself? 
in a world that is simultaneously running backwards and forwards, where past and future are happening simultaneously, where mm-hmm. cause and effect are unmoored and unlinked. And, you know, not to not to put too much of a pin in it, let's just say that in 2020, that felt like a very relevant theme. Um, but like, and the answer, the movie actually presents an answer to that. And the answer to that is... What's happened happened, the idea of predetermination, the idea that maybe the actions that we do as people don't have direct consequences that will fix the world, because we live in a world, like as Lee pointed out, where income inequality is arguably so far out of control, it's impossible to rectify in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. We also live in a world where environmental collapse is, depending on which scientist you ask, so far beyond our capacity to fix at this point that we are basically doomed as a species. So the question is like, and it's the question the protagonist asks, which is, if I don't understand all of this world, if I don't understand the rules that govern this world and the mechanics that operate it, how do I know what to do? And you have that moment at the end with Neil where Neil's getting in the helicopter and Neil says, look, What's happened happened isn't, you know, it's a statement about the mechanics of the universe mm-hmm. or a statement of faith in the mechanics of the universe. It's not an excuse for inaction. So the logic of the movie is basically you do the right thing. That's what the protagonist learns is that you do the right thing in the situation. You make the choice that saves the lives. He chooses to save Cat. He chooses mm-hmm. to protect Cat. He refuses to hold like hold her hostage or ransom her or blackmail her. He gives her the gun to protect herself. Throughout, he basically does the right thing. And that's, you know, that's what he learns. That's his arc. It's like the world is topsy-turvy. It's absolutely insane. It doesn't make sense. The rules that govern it are like Byzantine and they're manipulated by people who hold power, uh, you know, whether physical, material sure. or wealth. But, like, but, but that's not an arc because that's also who he was at the beginning. He does try to blackmail her to start with. But, True. I, I, oh, sorry. sorry. I don't know if um, if this is because of the the palindromic structure of the film, but there is no traditional arc, yeah. and there is yeah. no like prelapsarian ideal. Like he doesn't start up here and end yeah. here. Yeah. Right. Like so, it's, it's kind of just this through line because he's always decent. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like he could have easily like got his team to safety at the very beginning and just sacrificed the crowd. Of like, course. Right. But, but yeah, he, but he was a good he guy. He goes back, yeah, which is great. Back. Yeah, no, yeah. that's great. Like I, 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 I was with him there. I guess, and and this is something that I've I've and, talked and about. And like just very quickly, notable mm-hmm. that in that sequence they're planning to blow up the cheap seats, and he throws them yep. up into yep. the uh, yep up into, into the, the expensive seats. seats into the box Abs- seats. Absolutely, no, no. I like, and again, I feel like that's that's kind of like the smatterings of the theme, which which I do not disagree with at all. Sorry. What you know. What my what my issues here are storytelling wise is it always seemed like our protagonist was behind where we were as an audience. I felt like I kind of I understood what was going on before he did. And that always made me a little frustrated. Uh, I I feel like, you know, a good movie always keeps uh, itself slightly ahead of where the audience is. Uh, You know, for example, Tenet's a movie about time travel. Everyone knows that about Tenet. That's just just, just a thing. Uh, And there's there's a few moments early on in the movie, midway through the movie, in which there is a big showdown with someone wearing a mask. We know right away that that's either going to be him or someone he knows. Like, that's just that's if you've seen a movie, you know, that's going to happen. But the way in which it is kind of labored out of the movie made me feel a little talked down to. Uh, Which which I felt was an issue throughout the movie is the movie took great strides in explaining things that we already knew as an audience. Can Nolan 
has Nolan ever gotten away from that though? Like, doesn't his isn't his exposition always like that? Yeah. Right. Like, isn't it all like Inception from beginning to end is like here's what's happening exactly what's happening. Did you forget? Because here's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Entire like, film, right? Like, yes. Dunkirk is like the only exception yeah. where it's like, all right, completely untethered. I won't explain anything. <laughs> Yeah. No, and I think I think that's that's a really good point. And uh, I'm going to compare this a lot to Inception as I really enjoy Inception. And of of course, they have many similarities. They are high concept sci fi action movies. I feel like with Inception, we did get a lot of exposition, which is great because you need that in a in a sci fi movie, though. With Inception, we also got something that we didn't get in Tenet. And I'm about to say something that might make people upset. In Inception, we got really fun and interesting visuals and action sequences that we did not get in Tenet. I, I thought I thought particularly the backwards fight with the guy uh, in full gear that comes out of the chamber looked dumb as hell. I thought it was a joke. That wow. and yep, I'm sorry. I I do apologize. Okay. I know like and I'm sure it was a very technical and difficult thing to shoot and choreograph, but I thought it looked really dumb. Wow, okay. I, I can't argue with that, but um <laughs> I, <laughs> Because I, I, this is a, a flaw of mine, but I have a really hard time watching things and taking my filmmaker hat off. Mm. So, like when I watched that, it was significantly less impressive the first time around. But the second time, when you when you notice that it's shot the exact same way the second time they show it, but from the reverse angle, mm-hmm. it's like, how did you map yeah. that? Like the cuts are in the same okay. places. It's yeah. incredible, and I can't think about it another way. But I thought the the battlefield sequence was really cool. I yeah. don't know. Ooh, ooh, like, ooh, baby. Oh, baby. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, Lee. Okay, 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 okay. Here we go. Just let, okay. let him go. <laughs> well, uh, well, no, and the battle, the battlefield sequence, uh, like, really signified to me. Uh, and you, you mentioned it earlier as a, kind of a nitpick. To me, it was a it was a glaring scratch of Nolan's lack of uh, establishing shot. We didn't see the enemy they were fighting until they had already blown up several bunkers. We had no concept for where they were in space in relation to the enemy. And sure, that might be an artistic choice, but as a viewer, what the hell's going on? (laughs) That's the kind of thing that I loved about the final sequence was like the sheer like confusion and the chaos of it and the wildness of it. And the the stuff like this, like... And again, this is like, and again, Lee mentioned watching it with his filmmaker hat on. I will never pretend that I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not a writer or anything like oh, that. But for the record, I'm not a filmmaker. And if I am, I'm the bad. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your videos. I've seen your videos, Lee. You're, you're pretty, you're pretty good. But um, what I, what I do, what I admire in a film, uh, and again, this is one of the things where I'm going to put a caveat after this. So just don't jump in there. But it's like, show me something that I have never seen before. Show me something that is utterly unlike anything that I've seen before. And yes, there's going to be somebody jumping in the comments saying, yes, but but Red Dwarf did an episode like this back in the mid-90s. Like, I feel like if the only example you can pick that is comparable to this $200 million blockbuster is one episode of a fringe British TV show from the 90s, then maybe... <laughs> and I, I love Red Dwarf. I adore Red Dwarf, but particularly like the early stuff, the early funny stuff, as they say. But like, if that's the only example you can pick, then I feel like maybe it there's some merit in the argument that it's doing something new. Like, 
people like what they like and and people have oh, yeah. their opinions mm-hmm. and this stuff and you know i mean i get people not liking tenant and because it, it is it is it is a very confident in itself film if we're being entirely like if we're being non-judgmental it is very yes. assured in what it's doing so if you are not on its wavelength then yes you will probably feel like it is the most obnoxious and arrogant film you have seen in a while if you are on its wavelength you're like yeah of course it's confident like if i was this movie i'd also be confident but like that i just like show me something that i haven't seen before and the movie does that and the climactic like sequence where everything is happening simultaneously backwards and forwards and you're following neil going one way through it and then coming back through it and then going the other way through it and it's like this is pure chaos but it's it's chaos that is orchestrated and chaos that seems like it is intentionally and artfully and pointedly chaos as opposed to a lot of modern action that's just like well we cut it as quickly as possible to get around it you know but I'm sorry. Context. Context is the important law here. Like, like for example, a, a really neat shot was when the when the inverted troops and the regular verted troops both shot a missile at the same building at the same time. That was a super neat and it's like half the building blows up and then reappears and then on the other yeah. side the, it's inverted. That's really neat. Why did they do that? Like, <laughs> like with, within the battle, what purpose did blowing up that building serve? It illustrated the chaos and the carnage Fuck of it. Fuck that! <laughs> <laughs> no, not everything was... has to exist practically. Like it's not as if like they're like Nolan wasn't literally in the movie directing the battle for the two troops like competing. It wasn't like Context. no, I'm staging. <laughs> he wasn't Context. staging an invasion. He was trying to capture that sense of chaos, which I again I loved. I I liked the they chaos spent of spent time. They spent time like synchronized watch. This is all part of the plan. Everybody ready? We got our watches. This is definitely part of and, the plan. Let's shoot the rockets. Why did they and, do it? And and then you land. And then chaos breaks out. It's like it's that moment from Saving Private Ryan where you're inside with the guys and everything yes. is like a standard war movie, and then all hell breaks loose. Right. Yeah. And that and made I, sense within context. <laughs> well, because World War II was a thing that happened, and we all know that. <laughs> I feel like if you showed it to like somebody from the 17th century, they'd be like, What the hell is this? If you showed yeah. <laughs> No, no, but the then then why spend time on the watch on synchronizing watches on this is all part of the plan why spend that time to tell us that doing this rocket thing at the exact right moment is really important unless it serves a function within the scene yeah there was chaos before the cool building my my problem with tenet is that there are a lot of really cool visual ideas and nolan I have said this publicly before, is a very good visual storyteller. I think that Nolan is able to display abstract concepts very clearly in his movie. A movie like Memento and Inception are tough concepts, and he is able to illustrate them very well. But what we have in Tenet is a lot of really cool visual concepts that don't necessarily add anything. Can I can I throw something out to, to both Jack and Lee? Because I, I I've been thinking about this since I first saw it. Um, yeah. This 
Nolan is a Michael Mann fanboy. Like the Dark Knight is he. Like he's like he's such a fanboy yeah. that he's on the Blu-ray doing interviews, talking to Michael Mann about yeah. it. He was the guy who hosted the Q and A where like Al Pacino's like, by the way, I was on cocaine. My character was on cocaine the whole way through the movie. It's like that's an important piece of context, Al. Thank you for that. Uh, we feel like we got it from your performance. Yeah. Um, but like. He's a big fan of man, and I was watching this, and again, this is the weird kind of funereal thing I mentioned with Unhinged, where this feels like the Christopher Nolan version of a late man movie. Something like, say, Miami Vice, something like Black Hat. And arguably, if you go even further back, it feels to me a little bit like something from the late New Hollywood era, where, like, the auteurs were getting out of control and needed to be reined in by the studios and will be replaced by the blockbusters. In particular, it reminds me of something like, um, what should we call it, uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer, right down to the fact that, like, it's a movie that is so in love with like its big action sequences that it finds a way to replay them twice for you. Uh, Cause it's like, look at what we did. It's so cool. Now look at us do it again, which mm. is the height of kind of like cinematic kind of hedonism, so to speak. But like, I'm wondering for like Jack and Lee, does that, it does that feel kind of accurate? Is that like you mentioned like David Lean and stuff like that. What did you yeah. get that man stuff Lee or? For sure. Um, it, it makes sense. I, what I, my biggest takeaway on that point of like needing to be reined in, I want Nolan with a better creative team. I, I want someone without the name Nolan to write a Nolan script. And I also want him to work with a cinematographer who does more than what he says. Like a good example <laughs> is um, Roger Deakins and Denis Villeneuve. If you watch Villeneuve's work in other films, it's significantly different from what he does with Deakins because Deakins makes Villeneuve sit down and justify each and every shot. Every frame of the film needs to be justified and intellectualized in some way for Deacons to, to shoot it. I, I imagine what Tenet would look like with that kind of vetting for the shots. It's not loose. Everything is airtight. You probably trim like 15 minutes off of the film because it is super indulgent. Like this explosion is great. Let's show it not twice, three times. Like people need to see this. So if, if it's rained in, I think that that would help a ton. I don't think Nolan is going to do that. But it would be great. But yeah, the 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 late the late period you mentioned with, with Michael Mann is, is definitely apparent for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I and I I get that, and I think I I do like I I I like Nolan because he, like I feel in my heart that Nolan is high class schlock. And I say that with ultimate praise. Like, <laughs> I, I love Tenant, right? I adore t- my favorite movie of last year. Yeah. And I will say unreservedly, Tenant is the product of a guy who at 10 years old discovered that he could watch the Blues Brothers press rewind and play at the same time and see the cars going backwards. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. It, it, it is that. Like, no one, mm. like, again, and, and kind of like, you know, it, he is it Jennifer Lame did the ending on this, which is fascinating because she's not an action movie director. I think she's did you do marriage story? Am I correct in that? But anyway, basically Lee Smith was working on something else. So Nolan kind of shook it up and hired a different editor. But like a lot of Nolan's movies are built around editing tricks. You mentioned in particular, like his preference for the kind of like one shots, the two alternating back and forth shots. But even things like say Inception is built around a plot device that structures the cross cutting. It's an engine that's designed to allow Nolan to cut between five levels of action happening simultaneously mm-hmm. because he really digs that kind of editing. So, no, I, I absolutely and unequivocally accept that Tenant is the product of a, a 
10 year old realizing that like forward and rewind work on the VHS at the same time. But, and but, I adore that. That's a $200 million movie. But then, but then there's also this weird, and I know like no one gets called out for this a lot. So I don't want to like beat a dead horse. There's also this weird lack of humanity in, in a lot of Nolan's works. I I feel like the editing in particular for tenant was bad i feel like they did not like specifically like in that, and not even for action sequences even just like character sequences where you know it's a lot of one shot one shot one shot and we don't hold on characters emotional reactions we kind of mechanically cut from dialogue to dialogue it doesn't give me a good sense for any of the characters the the first meeting we have with the wife uh, you know, she yeah. she kind of like does an emotional dump during that dinner that seemingly like it kind of makes sense within her character. But it is a weird emotional dump. Everything, everything is a little herky jerky. And I like that was one of my first like ew moments of the movie was when we were just talking and explaining stuff. And the editing did seem stiff. To me. Hmm. What I will say about Nolan's editing, and I'm cautious about mentioning this to both Lee and Jack, who probably know far more about this than I do. But what I've noticed about Nolan's editing is that Nolan's editing is that classic editing trope of using a shot to convey information. Jack mentioned, like, Nolan is very good at explaining high concepts to audiences, to parsing them at audiences in a way that they can understand. Mm -hmm. Like, if you want to get a sense of that, like, compare something like Interstellar, which is, like, earned $800 million, sorry, $700 million at the global box office, despite being a movie about the theory of relativity at its <laughs> core. Like, he, yeah. he's able to explain in a way that audiences get it, and the way that he does that is by controlling the edit. They're using the classic, Nolan doesn't do oneers, he doesn't do long takes. I think even, like, the sequence is, if you think in your memory of what you think of as a long Nolan take, it's not a long Nolan and take things like the corridor spinning in inception you don't ever see a full rotation in a single shot it's cut between shots there and i would argue the reason that nolan does this at least based on like watching his films and watching the way that he operates and the way in which he talks about how he operates he uses his cuts to convey information and to orient the audience in the concepts that he's delivering. So every single cut is like, here's a piece of information you need to know. Have you got that? Fine, we'll cut out. He does a lot of insert work as well in particular. There's lots of like, he won't show a character picking up something, handing it, following the object. He'll show yeah. you a cut of the object, a cut of the character, and a cut of the object being over somewhere else. And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, you got the information from the cuts there. And I think that Nolan, when it comes to characters, is more dependent on actors than many other directors. He relies yeah. on the warmth of his cast and his leading men in particular. Like you singled out Inception as like one of your favorite Nolan films. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that a large part of that is down to the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio workshopped a lot of the emotional arc of Cobb for that movie. Absolutely. Got involved in the ground floor and kind of shook it up. And things like, say, Interstellar, however one feels about it, a lot of that is carried on the fact that Matthew McConaughey is the most charming man in movies, quite possibly. Um, so, no, I, I can see that. I think, yeah. I think John David Washington is quite good here. I think he has that it factor that allows you to get past the fact that his character doesn't have a name or an arc um <laughs> but like i i i actually i think for me it wasn't that big of a deal but i can see i can see where you're coming from there i think yeah. that's fair nolan's films as far as the edit they don't yeah. there's no cinematic curiosity yeah 
everything is economical and precise. That's I would love really to see. It, yeah. Um, I don't want to name drop other filmmakers, but like Joe Walker, he edited uh, 12 Years a Slave. Like mm-hmm. he's very well known for being precise when he has to be, but leaving room for things. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that would be fantastic for Nolan. Like in that scene you mentioned, Jack, when um the, the wife is kind of discussing and having that dump. Mm-hmm. If the camera stays on her throughout that entire dump, because yeah. Davicki is actually good enough for that, that would have been yeah. fantastic. Right. Well, that, that you know, it's and, and that's why I think Nolan does get like classified as having like that lack of empathy um, just because like and there's nothing necessarily wrong with mechanical. We get all the information, but we don't hit that emotional weight that I think they were trying to get across with some characters. Yeah. And there, there's a balance there. I mean, oh, Michelle yeah. Hanukkah's work is super unsentimental like Hanukkah made academic films for the longest when you watch something like the piano teacher there's no sentimentality in the way that film is made at all Mm -hmm. but there's still a powerful emotional punch by the end of it so there's a balance that I'm not sure no one's going to ever tap into (laughs) (laughs) that's okay yeah the my my other my other issue my I have I have lots of issues I have lots of issues but I because overall I like in general I really did not like the movie. I I think no, anyone who, anyone who says that this movie is confusing like it's it's very much not. It's very time goes forward, time goes backwards. It's very 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 simple movie. Uh, sometimes is, stuff explodes. And sometimes stuff explodes and that's great. And like but I also felt like the movie's premise given what the information that they've given us is kind of fundamentally broken within uh, an action movie setting and I'll, I'll i'll try to walk you through my thoughts and hopefully you can help me uh you know or you know counter or whatever however you want to do so uh we are introduced to the idea of these inverted objects like how time reacts differently uh, w- with the bullets that was our first inverted object right yeah. you're able to pick up uh oh, here here's the camera you're able to A bullet is able to jump into your hand because at one point you dropped it and now with inverted time you are able to pick it up even though you picked it up first, right? And quick quick note there, by the way, the way in which that's demonstrated is on a VHS by rewinding the tape in case you don't get the entire premise of Tenet is an editing booth. But sorry, Jack, continue. Oh, oh, no, no, which which is very fun. And uh, again... Nolan does a very good job. Okay, items can go backwards sometimes because at some point you drop them. Easy. I'm with you. Like sci-fi, I'm totally with you. Uh, then, you know, we get we get the larger universe. The the picking up item, in fact, is is uh, given to us a lot of times. We we see uh, yeah. uh, our our mate, our arms dealer. I don't remember anyone's names. Priya, Priya. Uh, him uh, you know he picks up the inverted uh, metal items that were sent to him from the future oh Sator sorry Sator Sator. he picks up the gold he picks up the gold he picks up the gold uh, with using inverted items but if if we were going to how do I want to put this I don't feel like the time travel was utilized in a interesting way on a moment by moment level now here's a really dumb example keeping in mind that i'm not a movie writer i'm not a good movie writer <laughs> like in one second i gotta use the bathroom really really yeah, okay sorry. yeah go ahead yeah, sorry 
He's got to use the bathroom real quick. But so right. I'll, I'll give you my example while Lee does that, which is if if I were writing a schlocky movie and someone was able to time pick up a bullet, there might be a case in which I'm out of bullets in my gun. And so then I throw a bullet into time and then therefore I'm able to catch a bullet and put it in my gun and use it. Right. That's my schlocky I- example. I, I mean, like, you, you get that, but you already have people who are, like, obsessively nitpicking the logic of the movie as it is. Oh, no, um, no. What, what, what I'm... Yes, but what I'm saying is we need... This movie needed a neat... Uh, in, it needed an interesting action sequence that utilized the time travel power, and I felt like we got that on the large scale, like with kind yeah. of the, the planning of this operation, they they spend time on that boat traveling. Temporal pizza movement. Exactly. Like they, they travel back in time a week on that yeah. boat so they can get to the right place, which is great. But it never really happened on the small scale in the moment to moment. We never got... We never got think, the Inception hallway. We never got I, that fun. I think fight during the sequence. hallway hallway fight sequence, you see him like throwing and catch, realizing he can catch the gun instead of throwing it. For example, you get little moments like that where he kind of throws the gun away and like the gun's away, and he realizes, oh no, wait, the gun is the gun he brought back, so mm-hmm. it's inverted. So if I just reach out, it can be like I threw it, and bam, I've got a gun. You get moments like that, I think, which is fair to say. And like mm. what I what I will say. While we're talking big picture and again, very pretentious-y, nonsense stuff, I'm sorry about this. Mm-hmm. I love this movie so much. Um, but one of the things that I absolutely love about its action sequences is that the action sequences are exposition. The action sequences are thematic exposition. So think about even before you've seen characters inverted, one of the first big action beats after the opera siege is the moment where the protagonist and Neil bungee cord into a skyscraper. They mm-hmm. bungee cord upwards instead of downwards which again a literal inversion of the concept but even like when you're having these debates about like predetermination predestination i love that the heist in like estonia they drive up to the truck and they force the truck to drive along its assigned path and route so Mm -hmm. as not to alert anybody the heist is taking place therefore again an action sequence that works as a weird metaphor for the theme of predestination and destiny and the idea that maybe we don't control where we're going and we're all on tracks and where we're going to end up is predetermined. I love that stuff. Sorry, Jack. I, I want Sorry, Jack. I want Bill and Ted time travel tricks. This is what <laughs> Like that's that's the summation of my thing. They get a superpower, which I'm I'm being intentionally uh, minimalistic here. They get a superpower of time things, and they don't use them. You get a Bill and Ted thing. Like the entire like arc of the movie depends on Neil doing the Bill and Ted thing of well, well, I better remember to go back and do all that stuff you saw me do earlier in the movie, like rescue you in the Kiev Opera House and get myself shot while unlocking the door, like. That's but, a Bill and Ted beat. Like, but I love that's it. The but it's interesting a- stuff, and it's not showed; it's implied. Show yeah. me, show me you going around to the opera house and putting that down. <laughs> that would be really neat, don't you think? Like, if all this stuff happened in the first act, act of the movie, and the second act was them like checking off their notes and remembering where to go, like that would be a tension beat. But we, you we get don't that get with a the cool protagonist. What? You get that like you get that with the, the protagonist does several of his own action sequences backwards. You don't get it with Neil. And I yeah, I but like it looks the... lame. Oh, <laughs> it's I, not I, cool. I, it's not cool when you punch backwards, Darren. That's okay. not cool. Okay, I'm I'm gonna pull a Lee on this. I'm gonna say I got nothing. 
<laughs> Fair point. You win, Jack. Um, you win your, the hallway fight, the backwards hallway fight we're having apparently. Right. Uh, I don't know. Like, like so. So in in my head, you yeah. in my head at least. Obviously, yeah. I'm not Christopher Nolan. You need a sequence in which protagonist utilizes the time power in a fun way, a la hallway fight. But so you know, my uh, Lee, the example that I gave was you know you he runs out of bullets, so he's able to grab a bullet because he actually threw a bullet and put it in his gun and shoot it. But then that wouldn't work within the reality of going backwards because then you would have to unshoot someone. Yeah. And so that doesn't work. And so maybe you could hand it off to someone else who is regular. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think the shtick works. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like avoiding the stuff that you mentioned is like exactly the right level for the shtick to pitch itself, to be fair. Like it's like Inception. Like one of the big criticisms of Inception is, and you know, I don't necessarily buy it, but I understand it, is like, man, Nolan must have the most boring dreams where he dreams he's driving around a city or taking part in Her Majesty's Secret Service or going to a hotel somewhere. Jeez, you can tell he recently did a press tour for a Batman movie. But like, I mean, you you do kind of like, one of the big things is like, well, why aren't the dreams in Inception more like, say, the dreams in the anime Paprika, to pick an example? Hmm. Like, why aren't they more adventurous or more playful than that? And that, like, look, that's a fair point. If you want those, those are better for you. That's a perfectly valid approach to go. I think that in Inception and here, Nolan picks a level at which he understands the concept can operate without alienating a vast portion of the audience or without confusing it. I think that, like, you know, Paprika is a great animated movie, a great anime movie. Mm -hmm. It is not the last original blockbuster to earn more than $800 million at the global box office, you know, just to put it in context. Um, And I feel like, you know, Tenet obviously was also not the last original blockbuster, (laughs) um, which he may come to in a moment. But I I do think that there's an element of pitching itself. I mean, this is the weird thing with Nolan where you get this, like, he's an an intellectual he's not necessarily an overly intellectual filmmaker he's not really what he's very good at doing is taking a high concept and rendering it in a way that is accessible to my dad um like that's Mm -hmm. that's it um and i feel like the time travel shenanigans in tenet are at the perfect level for my dad to follow um and i i like and that sounds dismissive or unfair it's not really there's a lot of ambitious stuff that myself and Lee have talked about in there, but I feel like being able to communicate that to mass audiences. And like when I mentioned the late man comparison, the big difference between man and Nolan is that Nolan is inherently a populist. Nolan will never make anything as potentially alienating to mass audiences as Miami Vice or Black Hat, as much as I love those movies, because he's a guy who loves making blockbusters, maybe. Um, and and I, like, I don't see a problem with that because I like, blockbusters that are original and weird but I, I do think like that's the answer to your question I don't know if it's not a satisfying answer to you and I get that it's not necessarily the right answer it's not necessarily a fair answer but I think that is the answer to the question that you asked which is why don't you do this this crazy outlandish stuff and it's like well if you do that you end up losing a large part of the audience that you've already like you've got a lot of buy-in from them already to be fair um, I think maybe but also, sorry 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 he, he literally tells the audience not to think about it yeah just just feel it well feel it and like t- to me that's that's where it really failed because uh, like i i am willing to buy any sort of garbage as long as the action is cool 
and interesting. I, I'm in. I'm in. Like, you give me a throwaway line, I buy it as long as there are punches being thrown. And I feel like that's where the movie really lost me because I didn't feel like the action sequences were worth anything. It's specifically the time shenanigan action sequences where they didn't mean anything to the story or they didn't do anything interesting with the backwards forward relationship. And that's, that's what I was looking for. You know, like, like when, when protagonist is, is first in the backwards world, the inverse world, and he steals the car and realizes that it was him in the car that was flipped over on the highway um, or he realized that before, which is why he did because he, he threw it back in. He threw, yeah, he, he threw it back in. Um, and again, that's arguably one of the plot holes if you care about such things. And it is that he brings the yeah, he brings it back to the place, and Sator steals it from him. And if that's right. not shown, that's not shown on screen. But that's not a problem. It doesn't actually matter. No, yeah. no, and yeah, like like the the plot hole doesn't get me. It's that nothing cool happens with the car chase. Like that's what I want to. <laughs> I want cool car like time shenanigans. Reverses. <laughs> one of them is reversing and the other one is not and they're driving and it's like a chase but the two of them are like chasing each other but look like they're reversing to each other i okay sorry i i like that <laughs> i'm sorry this is like this is like catnip for darren i'm sorry uh, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> one is going this way one is going that way it's amazing um, i am yeah I love that I I love that I was like I'm not sure what lane unhinged is in but it's like one car go backwards one car go forwards that's where Darren's at. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I mean I I love that action stuff. I wish yeah. Nolan leaned in more on certain things like the the ice coming from the the fire and the inverted like that could have been super interesting but he just kind of cuts like Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Tell us that. I want to. I want to see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there there are a lot of instances in this movie where we are uh, something is set up, like like the whole fact that because you're inverse, if there's fire, the inverse to that is you know hypothermia, which which is a really neat idea, or the bullet drop, right? Like the yeah. I dropped a bullet, so it sucks up into my hand, which are really neat setups that have no payoffs, and I. That's, uh, you know, that kind of goes into my whole they didn't do anything interesting with with the action sequences is we don't necessarily get a set up and payoff relationship, which I understand timey wimey. Jack, I promise I promise this is a quick one and I'm sorry and I'm sorry. The payoff with the catching the bullet thing is that thematic element of you have to have dropped it. You have to have made a choice to drop it in order to affect it. The entire point is that your choice still matters. That, like, even though this is a movie where destiny is predetermined or, like, the outcome is probably already known, the fact that you make a choice to drop it still matters, even though the physics of it are, frankly, gonzo. Mm -hmm. Which is, I would argue, a central theme of the movie. And, you know, I mean... Anyway, sorry, that's... I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. Oh, no, no, no. And, I like, I, I think you are correct, is what I'm saying. You are correct that it is a thematic element... I want a cool element. (laughs) (laughs) I really have turned into Garth Malenghi, haven't I? (laughs) Subtext is for cowards. Um, (laughs) No, and I've I've also written more books than I've read. Um, (laughs) Like, and I, like, I, I have been overly harsh. Uh, So, uh, something. No, 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 no. no, no. Hopefully, something we can all agree on. Here's a, a big positive that I would like to say for Tenant: the score. I'm going to listen to that every fucking day. That score is hard. I love every second of it. Yes. 
I agree. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. We can yeah. come together on that, <laughs> that point. Um, and again, like, and again, this is the, the kind of weird funereal aspect of it, like the aftermath of it, right? Because I, I don't necessarily want to talk about the release of it again, because that was a fecking nightmare for everybody involved. And like right. the particulars of it where it was like, Nolan is trying to kill people. And it's like, no, actually, it turns out that Warner Brothers were always going to release something. And this was the last date that they were going to release that something on. And it's probably a good thing that the movie they released came from the white guy who will get another shot, even if this bombs, as opposed to like any of the slate of minority or female filmmakers who are finally getting a long overdue chance of being blockbuster directors this year. Mm-hmm. So let's just put all that in a box and just like not <laughs> let, let but let's let's acknowledge that like it underperformed to put it mildly in the states. It performed relatively well overseas. I think it earned about as much overseas as Dunkirk did, and Dunkirk had the like advantage of not being released in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. But obviously the fallout of things like say the HBO Max situation where like HBO where Mourners like all our well AT&T one suspects we're like all of Warner's movies are going to land on HBO Max simultaneously and Nolan's like wonderfully tactless response of they're putting them on the worst streaming service which, oh. <laughs> which is just a, I love I love that um, when Nolan does shade Nolan does shade but like the idea and the suggestion that like Nolan and it's been coming for a while I think like after the whole we talked about like the Zack Snyder Justice League stuff mm-hmm. but like the whole thing where Warner Brothers was like we're not going to work with auteurs anymore you know we're not really interested in that kind of filmmaking anymore we're not worth giving like we're not going to give carte blanche to people with the exception of like Clint Eastwood and Nolan and now Nolan has like not only burnt the bridge but like torched it like Russell Crowe at the start of unhinged style and the question of like nice what happens yeah I know um, what what it's really won't make your head hurt that movie but the question of like what happens next so like the question of like is nolan's next movie going to be at warner brothers if not is any other studio going to give him a home are they going to give him the same creative freedom that he's enjoyed because nolan is arguably the last auteur operating at that level, the last guy who can get a $100 million plus budget for a property that is not based on an existing IP, that is just something that he cooked up in his head. The kind of stuff that, like, Tony Scott used to do all the time. That kind of stuff. And, like, what that means in terms of, like, the future. So is, like, when I compare this to the end of New Hollywood and, like, late Man, Man hasn't made a movie since Black Hat. I don't think this is Nolan's last movie, but I do wonder, like... Is there a chance that this is the last movie like this that we will see for a very long time, where a director is given on the power of their name, carte blanche, to do whatever the hell they decide they're going to do without any existing comic book or TV or intellectual property tied to it? And yeah, does that feel strange? It sucks. It's it's very depressing to, to think about that. Um. Because I don't, I don't see Nolan settling for Netflix where he can get that yeah. freedom, like like a Scorsese, where it's like, look, here's a small book, but also here's 150 million dollars, right? Like Nolan's not gonna settle for that. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know where he lands from here, and that's really depressing because yeah. I want yeah. movies like that. I want those original IPs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I can agree with you. And for all of even even though I didn't like Tenet, I 100 percent appreciate that Nolan swung big. And yes, it's a big, weird sci fi action movie. 
that you know worked for some people didn't necessarily work for me and i i love that it exists in general i think that ooh ooh if i'm going to go out on a limb i'm going to say that nolan will definitely bow to a streaming service because he still wants to make movies and i don't see a studio with the only studio that has uh, enough money for Nolan, one uh, or the only two studios that have enough money for Nolan, he burned the bridge for one, and the other makes Marvel movies now. Uh, <laughs> he's, Nolan's not going to make a Marvel movie, so I could very easily see him making a Netflix original movie, a Hulu original property, and taking that budget hit. And I think it's exactly what he needs. You may be right. I, I think him going back to that mid-budget weirdo have a ton of limitations but make something really interesting out of that could really do Nolan some good. It does, but at the same time, like, this is the thing that really bugs me about, like, the the weird narrative that you see where people seem to really enjoy hating Nolan because he wears scarves and because Anne Hathaway told that story one time about how she didn't sit in a chair in his set. So obviously he was a monster who like takes away children's chairs while they sleep, even though there are photos <laughs> of like people sitting on chairs on his sets. But like that weird obsession the internet has with like hating kind of Nolan or like treating him as being this kind of like absurd ogre monster figure um, who's like planning to mass murder everybody in the US by releasing his movie in cinemas um but i i kind of find it weird that you have that backlash against him because it feels like a sign of the times it feels like i would be happier if there were more directors getting the same freedom that nolan enjoys mm -hmm. if nolan wasn't like a one in a billion filmmaker these days if instead the studios were like yeah taika watiti you made thor uh, that made a shed load of money for us you know what Instead of having 20 million to go make Jojo Rabbit, why don't we give you 80 or 100 million and let you do what you want with it? Or like Nia DaCosta, you, we, we really like Littlewoods and like your remake of Candyman is, is fantastic uh, by all accounts. So, you know, how about instead of making Captain Marvel 2, you, you come up with whatever crazy projects in your head and we will give you $120 million to back it because we think that's fun. And I don't know, I just, it, it feels really weird to me that we live in an era where people seem excited at the prospect that this director is going to be taken down a peg and that there will no longer be any directors who can enjoy that sort of freedom to do what they want. And that is, that is strange to me. It, it, again, like I feel like the cinematic ecosphere is richer if you have the MCU, but you also have not just Nolan, but like, five or six or seven directors similar to Nolan kind of operating. And I will shout out uh, in the comments, there's a debate, like, the like this is where we are, that the big debate is over, does Tarantino count? Like, does Tarantino count as, <laughs> as a director who makes blockbusters? And there is an argument for it, because he's the only director who gets that level of budget. Nobody gets a Tarantino level of budget and freedom, but that's the cap. That's where the ceiling is. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not uh, Tony Scott anymore. It's awards fair. You know, it's late summer, like, you know, that that that's weird to me. Like, and I know I, I know it's fashionable to go. Oh, he has a funny scarf, and he's British, and he drinks tea, and he doesn't know who Harry like Styles. The scarf's is. a and bit much. No, I it mean, is. I, one, it looks great. No, the scarf and, looks you know, great. He pulls it off. He, 
he's disappeared up his own backside and he's very pretentious and he thinks he's smarter than he is and he makes the intellectual i think is what you know certain people call the type of intellectual because it's a movie that thinks it's intellectual but can't spell intellectual you see that's oh. the joke um but like you have the you have like this weird caricature of him mm-hmm. and i find it strange that it's it's like no, this is this is a thing that should never exist anymore. Nolan shouldn't get the freedom to do this stuff because when he does, it's pretentious or it's up his own arse or whatever. And the solution to that is to not let anybody do it and just live in a world where like franchises roam the earth and all directors are like bumped up from making zero budget indies to making franchise tie in properties where the studio is leaning over their shoulder and doing all of their second unit shots for them. And I, I do feel like, again, I'm sorry, I know this is like last week where it's like, I know this makes me sound like a pretentious nostalgic old man shaking his fist oh, at the cloud, but it, it does make me a bit sad. It's, it's incredibly depressing. I mean, even with Barry Jenkins, who made Moonlight, one of the better films of the last decade, gets an Academy Award, makes If Bill Street Could Talk, nobody talks about it. It's an incredible film. And then he gets Lion King too. Yeah. Like, what are we doing, right? Like, in what world is that not depressing, right? Like, Ava gets, Selma gets all types of glory for it. It's not my favorite film, but it, it was successful. Yeah. Then they, they pitch her Black Panther too, Like, or, or the, the first Black Panther, she turned it down because she was like, this is not my vision. I can't yeah. work with this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ugh, yeah. it's so depressing. It's so- <laughs> sorry. Well, sorry. No, sorry. I, I think, I think they're... I think there's a world where where both can exist, and I I genuinely think that part of that world is is capping. I think if you cap Nolan, if you you know bring Nolan you know down a couple hundred million, then you get that <laughs> for the other artists. Well, in a perfect world, obviously, we don't live in a perfect world, but I I think. I think this is a universal truth is that usually a universal truth. And then I say usually, (laughs) (laughs) right, Uh, because I'm just I'm full of contradictions. I think that you can get to a point where a filmmaker gets too comfortable and has too much money and stops stops thinking outside the box, thinking outside their limitations because they don't have limitations. And I'm not saying that's what happened in Tenet, um, but I think that limitations are fundamental to the creative process. If that helps, if that helps at all. And, and yeah, like do your Lion King, do your, you know, do your low budget movie, get a, get a, a, a high to mid budget, do a franchise, then go back to a high to mid budget. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, been thinking recently about like unstoppable from 2010 i think was that the last film that tony scott made that is a 100 million dollar film starring chris pine and denzel washington about a runaway train without a superhero in it and i think like that's i love like i love that movie it's not a masterpiece but it's a kind of movie that i love seeing and it's like i will never see the like of that again you know Mm. Yeah, $100 million train movie. That's that's what we need. That's I'm just going to keep reveling in my weird artsy-fartsy Robert Eggers, Ari Aster films. Yeah. Like, that's fair. Um, and I will say, you, you singled out Secret Honor. I only saw Secret Honor um, a couple of months ago. Astounding. I think it's on Criterion. Well oh, worth yeah, so It's on the Criterion channel. So is What Happened Was by Tom Newman. Please watch it. If you hate it, you can yell at me personally, but it's so... <laughs> <laughs> Lee's Twitter is right underneath his name. If you yeah, watch yeah. it and hate it, you just you tweet right at him. <laughs> I'm, I'm <gonna> let me <laughs> it. 
before... drive up next to him, ask him to roll down his window and say, you, know, <laughs> you couldn't give me a courtesy recommendation, no? Um... <laughs> uh, a, a quick, uh, a quick uh, last uh, uh, tip here from Jack Brown. Thanks for the five euros. Hey, Darren, you might not remember this, but remember when RTE cut off Selma's Oscar winning song <laughs> halfway through for an ad break? What is that? <laughs> Um, yeah, so that like Selma, you know, won the the Oscar. So, but they basically they uh, they cut to an ad break in the middle of it rather than letting it play um, because oh, we no. have commercial pro. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> yeah. That is a, yeah. Well, I think I think that was a. Thank lovely... God that was the worst thing that ever happened at the Oscars. Thank God that was the worst mismanagement or misorchestrated thing that ever happened at the Oscars. Was an Irish broadcaster putting a break at, a, at an odd uh, an odd point. It's amazing. Oh, hold on, we need to cut to Anthony Hopkins now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. Oh, oh crap! Oh crap! <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, that uh, that is going to wrap us up. I thought that was a lovely discussion about you know two movies, uh, <laughs> about two full fledged <laughs> movies. Thank you everyone for watching and or listening to this. As a reminder, uh, our our YouTube channel where we live stream all of these discussions, uh, it is available for YouTube memberships, and that helps us uh, produce this content and make sure we have money to rent movies uh, starring Russell. Crow, which, which maybe, maybe we, you know, we, we could shouldn't finance. Do. We could finance a movie starring Russell Crowe if we get enough. Like you know, maybe you want to stop paying <gasps> us to rent movies starring Russell Crowe's, but I don't think you should because it's really oh. fun. Oh, wait, Darren has a Rus- big brain moment. Yeah, Russell Crowe is a train driver who's been pushed too far. This summer, it's unrailed. <laughs> I'm available to direct. Let's go. <laughs> I, I would love to see Lee's on man. <laughs> Darren writing, Lee directing. Absolutely. Oh, and uh, as another yeah. reminder, if you only listen to the audio version of this, it's going to be hard for me to recommend this now if you're only listening to the audio version. But the audio <laughs> if version. If you found it already, yes. <laughs> Uh, the audio version of this is now on Anchor, which is the new podcasting arm of Spotify. Uh, and so that's that's where we're putting the audio of this now over on Anchor. Is that what I'm supposed to say, Nick? I think that's what I'm supposed to say. Our <laughs> editor-in-chief is telling me I'm supposed to tell you that. I don't know what Anchor is. <laughs> <laughs> that that bit really sunk. Oh. <laughs> Nice. No, you just, nice. You just today. Love it. Gotta love <laughs> it. He's doing great. Uh, so yeah, once again, thanks everybody for watching and or listening to this. I've been Jack Packard. I'm Darren Mooney. Lee Murphy. And we'll be back another time to talk about more movies. Bye everyone. Yeah.